<laughs> Hello. What a lovely turnout. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Now we should probably do a little bit of housekeeping first. Who's got one of those fabulous devices? Oh right? yeah, I bet check. I yeah. think I left mine out the back of the yeah, green room. So actually. did I. If we can ask you not only to put it on silent, because then you still hear the buzz, buzz, buzz through thing. If we can actually ask you to put it on aeroplane, and oh. if there's a drama, I'm sure it'll wait this short period of time that we have with Paul. So um, if everyone can check their phones, and um, I'm Sophie Thompson, and I'm I'm. Very fortunate. <laughs> I got the lucky gig <clears throat> of being here, having a conversation with Paul. Um, ask him all the things that I'd like to ask him for my sake anyway. So we're going to have a little bit of a chat. And then after that, we're going to open up to the audience and let you ask some questions too. But with so many people in the room, I'm sure <laughs> there will still be some people that go home with questions. So we might even limit it to one question each. Um, who's got their copy of the book? Yay. Yeah, look at that. Go, and there are amazing. more for sale outside. Everyone will go home with one, I'm sure, afterwards. Um, I need to start off actually by doing um, the Welcome to Country. And we want to acknowledge that we meet here tonight on the lands of the Ghana people, who are the traditional custodians of this land. And we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Um, and we certainly respect their cultural heritage their beliefs and their relationship with this land that we meet on. So, this book, Paul, tell us about it. How oh. did it come about? <laughs> Where do I begin, Sophie? <laughs> <laughs> begin at the beginning. It all started back in the summer of 1990, I believe it was. Uh, so, actually, this is what I've really been up to post-River Cottage. Uh, so, I, I guess a lot of you... Has everyone, everyone's seen River Cottage, right? That's right, yeah. You're not here just because you're like, oh, I saw this great gardening cookbook. It's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted a picture of Digger that you could, you know, put on the bookshelf at home. Uh, so we last, despite the fact it's still airing on SBS and on Foxtel, uh, we last made it in the summer of 2015. So it's, it's been, it's, yeah, it's ages ago. Uh, and it went to air Easter 2016. So it feels like a, almost a lifetime ago. But, um, but after the fourth season, the show was, the show stopped. Uh, it was kind of, you know, dropped by, you know, TV politics, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so I was at a little bit of a loose end. The farm got sold after the show was uh, discontinued. I'm just trying to think of like nice words to say like axe dropped, unceremoniously <laughs> booted. Uh, you know, it's like when people talk about, you know, killing lobsters because like, the animal's processed, you know. It's like, you know, it's kind of P PC, PC jargon. Um, so... And I was, I was at a bit of a loose end. My, you know, my wife was about to have our second kid. We were living in Bermagui on the far south coast of New South Wales, which is about 15 minutes from where the, the farm uh, was in Tilba. And um, we just weren't sure what we were, what we were up to, you know. Uh, and so I guess from my travels through my work with River Cottage, because I got to, you know, do a lot of travel around Australia, meet lots of interesting folk, um, and... I was really blown away by, one, how much the program resonated with people, you know, and, and the fact that you're all here tonight mm. is a real testament to, to what I hope is the kind of the, the backbone and the principles of River Cottage. But there was, but the, the, there was resonation, uh, but there was like a bit of a universal theme that I noticed in my conversations with people. And so many people like loved the program as an aspirational program, you know. I was like, oh, one day, you know, one day we're going to, when the kids are out of home and, and, you know, we've got a little bit more money and, you know, the, the, the economic downturn's done this and that and, you know. 
and the price of steels dropped 25 cents. Um, people have all kinds of crazy reasons for stuff. Uh, that we'll go and live on a property like that, you know. Uh, but we're not, we don't, we're not doing it now, you know. We, we, live in, we live in a backyard in town. And I'll often ask, you know, what are you guys doing, you know? And they're like, oh, you know, we've got a couple of chooks and we've got a little bit of a veggie garden. Uh, and I was like, well, you're doing it. You know, you don't, you're already doing it. You know, you don't need to go and move to, to 20 acres in the countryside to, to reap the benefits of, of, I guess, the core principles of what made River Cottage such, a, such an enjoyable program. So I, I kind of sat down and I thought for a while, I was like, well, what, you know, what are the, the, the kind of key principles of the program that, that, that made it successful uh, or that made people enjoy it so much? Uh, and I, I distilled it down to, to three kind of core celebrations. Uh, and one is the fact that it actually was a celebratory program. You know, it's uh, so much of the cooking that we see on TV at the moment uh, is, is not celebratory. You know, it's competitive. It's, it's like, it's individualistic. It's people using food as a tool to beat people, you know, to become the <laughs> apex of the pyramid, to become the master chef, uh, you know, and cast your enemies into the fire. And, you know, the confetti rains down from the ceiling because you're the best. Uh, but the reality is that food for so long has been something that's been an incredible force of bringing people together. It's, it's, a, it's a real community building tool. It's a relationship strengthener. It's something that, that kind of enhances our life when it's done right and the, our community life, our mental life, our spiritual life, all, all of those things benefit from a solid connection with the food that we eat. So the three things that I felt that River Cottage celebrated really well were, were a celebration of food, uh, and not food as in just like a, you know, the Iron Chef, like, ooh, secret ingredient today is squid. Uh, it was a celebration of the holism of food. Uh, I look back on the, the recipes that we did during the program there and, and realised the privilege that I had to, to be able to, every single recipe that, that, we, that we cooked on the program, so it was 32 episodes, four recipes per thing. I'm going to embarrass myself. That's 128 recipes. Is that right? Is there any like maths whizzes in there? Okay, that's, <laughs> that's, that's 128, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, so 128 recipes. And every single one of those recipes featured an ingredient that myself, a neighbour or just the greater ecology of the far south coast of New South Wales produced. There wasn't any recipe that we did where we just went, you know what, today just we want to cook with cabbage. So let's go to the supermarket and buy cabbage. It's, the, we'd start the program and I'd start the garden and I'd, I'd kind of inform the show runners about uh, what was happening on the farm uh, and then we'd all kind of sit down and brainstorm recipes that would match things as they became available. Uh, and, I mean, that sounds like... You know, it doesn't sound like it's that big a deal, but really that was, it was such a, an amazing experience to be able to have that connection to the food that you're eating. Uh, and it's something that, that has been a real fundamental part of human existence really since the dawn of our species, really. Like we're, that we're in the 99.9% of human history, we have had a very close fundamental and essential relationship with the food that we eat. Pretty much everyone in society, from the peasants to royalty, had some sort of connection to the food that they ate. And it's really only kind of post-World War II with the agro-industrial complex exploding around the world that, that we've been kind of sold the privilege 
of, you know, the, or the concept of it being a privilege to not being connected to food, that we've it's freed us up to do other things. You know, you don't have to worry about raising your own pigs and chickens or your own garden now. You're free to pursue other, you know, other interests. Uh, but I think when something has been such a fundamental part of the human condition for so long in human history that we've, we've got all these kind of tick boxes and all these, like, wirings and flags that, that, that I'm obviously not a psychologist, you know, because wirings and flags and tick boxes aren't technical, you know, medical terms um, <laughs> or psychological terms. Uh, but we've got all these things that, that, that resonate and satisfy us when we have that connection because for so long it's meant that we lived, uh, that we were safe, that we would see another day, that our family would live, our children would live. And that's the kind of stuff that, that makes you feel really good. And now we don't have that connection. Sure, we've got food, uh, but... They are, the, the, the connections aren't coming from the fact that you just have access to food. It's, it's, you know, all that satisfaction comes from the deep connection to it. So, well, so I was just talking at the back before and Sophie's like, you know, half an hour. We've only got half an hour uh, and I think we're already about 10 minutes in and I'm only about a quarter of a way through the first question. I should question. just interrupt here and say that Costa warned me. Costa rang me during the week and he said, I did the first one and you just start him off and then you just sit back. And I'm already thinking, don't worry about this. Lies, up. lies, lies, lies. Uh, so that was the, the kind of first foundation. Uh, and then the second, the second one is the celebration of place, you know, it's everything in the on the in River Coast, the series was uh, that we shot in the first three three seasons was shot within a 100 kilometer. The, you know, the farm was in the centre of a circle that was only 100 kilometers wide. You know, uh, and so everything in there was a real reflection of, of that region and that true regionality. Uh, and it's something really beautiful to celebrate your region. You know, and the things that you have immediately available because that connects you to the place, that connects you to the people. You actually physically become uh, the area where you live when you eat the food of your region you know we have this kind of transnational transcontinental diet where we can be eating foodstuffs from all over the planet but the old adage you are what you eat uh, rings true in a quite literal sense uh, and if you are eating the soil you know the the food that's grown in the soil of your local bioregion or the fish that that grow in the waterways of, of your local ecology then then you are becoming a part of that place uh, and that place is becoming a part of you, which is a really incredible thing to, to kind of think about. Uh, that's something that I like to kind of, you know, when I'm lying in bed every night, I think, wow, am I, the, I am the South Coast? Or is the, <laughs> or is the South Coast me? <laughs> and my wife just goes, shut up and go to sleep. Sus, <laughs> um. uh, and then the third, the third thing that, that I really feel like River Cottage celebrated was people, uh, you know, because within... You know, we obviously are a social creature, uh, you know, and we, we, we're in this kind of weird junction of time where we have uh, connectivity around the world uh, to a degree that's never been experienced before by any other chapter of humanity. Uh, but also we've kind of got this strange isolation, you know, that there's loneliness is on the rise. Mental health is the number one reason why people report to their GPs. Uh, and so that's, that's a little bit of a, like a strange irony that we're, that we're more connected than we ever have been uh, but strangely we're also more isolated than we ever have been uh, and that the, the kind of the death of the or the the, the absence of that tight-knit regional community 
is something that I think we're seeing play out with a whole raft of kind of mental and physical health ailments uh, throughout our society. Um, so there, I, I took those three principles and I went, you know what? Like you don't need to be on a farm to have those things. You know, they need, in fact... In here in Australia, I mean, we've got this. We, we kind of fancy ourselves as the, the the you know the country nation. You know, like we still the, the the character of the bush, the connection to our to our regions, to that you know the the concept of regional Australia, rural Australia, farmers, is something that that still really resonates within our national character. Uh, but the reality is we're one of the most urbanised societies on the planet. Uh, I think it's something around to the degree of 95% of the Australian population lives in an urban or suburban environment. So we're, we're, not, we're not really out on the farm. In fact, we're in town. Uh, and one of the uh, amazing things about, about living in this country is that if we are in town, you've got so much space and resource available. Uh, I, I remember on one of the few trips that I've actually been overseas, catching a train through the countryside of Italy... You know, as you do. <laughs> Bottle of Chianti. <laughs> just a train through the country. Oh, it's George Clooney on Lake Como. Hey, George. Uh, anyway, catching like an economy class thing, you know, around the, through the countryside of Italy and being really struck by how their villages were structured. So in Australia, you know, we have that abundance of, of space. Uh, and so when you've got, you know, anyone with a big shed, does anyone here have like a massive shed? You know, when you go, yeah, yeah. You know, when you've got a big shed, you fill it, right? You've got a little shed, you fill it. Like either way, no matter what size space you've got, you kind of, you, you, you push out to that boundary. And so in Australia, you know, like I grew up in a country town with 900 people. The main street was three kilometres long. <laughs> and it was about, a, you know, a block back each side. It was, it's, the town on paper looks massive, but there's only 900 people there. But you'd go, I'd go, the train would like wind through these little Italian villages and everyone would be living in apartments around a central piazza. So your, your, your personal space, like your home space, was quite small. But your community space was huge. Uh, and I just saw countless like nonas and nonos and families like riding push bikes or driving those cool little three-wheeled, three you know, like utes that they've got out to the allotments. So you had a small house, but every well, what appeared to be the case, everyone had like a huge vegetable garden within walking or push bike riding distance of the town. And I thought, that's, that's how you do it, you know, because you get that benefit of having a rich community life. You come out, you come down from your house, you have your coffee in the piazza in the morning, you see all your neighbours, you have that chat, you get that connection, and then you walk out to your little patch of land and you grow your food. And I thought, well, this, this is a great model. Uh, and for in terms of, you know, Western civilization, the Italians have been doing it for a fair while, so they've had a pretty good chance to get a handle on it. So, to answer your question, Sophie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had 30 uh, questions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope no one left the iron on at home because now your phones are on, uh, on airplane mode. It's going to be a long night. <laughs> Uh, We've got so, the whole the venue to one, so that's great. great. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be sweeping out the back in no time. I think it's sort of sweeping in front of us. Uh, so to answer the question, you know what the what the book's about? Uh, it's about the the whole picture, uh, and I'd like to think that I that I kind of distilled those three core principles of River Cottage and mm. put it into into one book because I broke it up into three sections mm. uh, because it, I, I like to compartmentalise things because it helps me wrap my brain around it. So the first section is how to grow food. Uh, and I looked at all the, or thought about the reasons that I'd heard, you know, people say why they don't grow food uh, or barriers to, to, to prevent people from growing food. 
And one of the biggest ones was space. Uh, you know, it's all good if you've got 20 acres of, uh, of rolling green countryside uh, on the far south coast of New South Wales. But the reality is most of us have a backyard, if that. We might have a terrace, we might have a balcony, we might have a sunny windowsill, we might not have any of those things. Uh, but that's not to say that you can't connect to growing your own food in some way. Uh, and I think that, the, you know, the whole, like, the river cottage concept and that idea of self-sufficiency is a little bit of a disservice uh, because one thing that this book is not about is trying to teach you to grow absolutely everything yourself. I mean, if you, if you want to, go, go to town, you know. Like, if you, if you feel like you can, you'd probably be the first person in human history to be self-sufficient. Uh, it's, not, it's not really that an achievable ideal, uh, but to just connect with how your food's produced by having an active hand in it yourself is, is a really powerful gesture. Uh, and so the, the growing section was broken down into what space you have available. So if you've got a sunny windowsill, I've got some options for you there. If you've got a balcony, there's some stuff you can do there. If you've got a, a backyard, there's things you can do there. If you've got no yard, it can tell you about how you can still connect with growing food. It's got fertility generation methods for each of those spaces. It's got information about keeping bees. It's got information about keeping chickens. And it's got an A to Z growing guide of all the common vegetables. Um, so I guess what I realised was that I, like, I, there's so many amazing titles out there in the cookery field and in the gardening field. I just wanted something that, that people could pick up and not feel intimidated by. You know, like it's... it's um, this, isn't, this isn't an encyclopedia. This isn't like the, the most in-depth look into growing food ever written. Because I've got one of those at home. It's a hand guide for market gardeners and it's the most dry, boring, scientific piece of crap I've ever read. Really fascinating, amazing. I mean, it's not a piece of crap, but it's just like you're reading and go... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. The Knott's Handbook for Market Gardeners. Great read. Look it out. It's available uh, from all good book retailers. Or some obscure university press in America, actually, but it's... Uh, uh, and because it, I guess one thing that... that that I, I really don't like and I think we missed with River Cottage, I mean, I think we didn't do it with River Cottage, which I'm glad for, is the whole finger wagging, you know? Like the, if you're not growing all your food and you're still shopping at the supermarket, shame. Shame on you. You should be living this life like I am on the farm. And if you're not, you're a loser, so don't even bother, you know? You may as well just keep eating your McDonald's, you know? Good luck to you. Because that's not the case. That's not how you bring people along, you know? That's not, that's not how you get people interested. That's not how you get people excited about doing stuff. It needs to be celebratory. It needs to be inclusive. And that's something that I really wanted to make sure this book was. And you've done a great <laughs> job. You mean it's my turn? <laughs> um, uh. And, and Paul has done exactly that and he's made the growing guide really easy and accessible for people that have never had a go before and if people, you know, have had a go before, they'll be excited by everything. The interesting thing for me, I'm an obsessive compulsive gardener, so I just think gardening is the solution to everything. Um, you know, up, up to world peace, down to, you know, our mental and physical wellness, but you incorporate the cooking and sharing side into that whole concept. And um, uh, something I'm not proud to admit, but I hate cooking, oh. right? I love growing. I hate cooking. Why would I want to be in the kitchen when I could be out in the garden? What do you do with all your produce? Well, I have to cook it. Yes. <laughs> but I don't enjoy it. <laughs> well, I've got a tribe of five, so it's like feeding an army. Yes. Um, no wonder you don't enjoy it. It's just like... <laughs> that's true. Um, they're but, hungry again. <laughs> that's 
restaurant. <laughs> but I did. I do. I've really enjoyed reading this concept of of community and how important that is. And then I thought, well, actually, that's right. Because when someone comes over to our place, we do give them stuff and we do share stuff with them, and we do love it when they come and. If people come to my place for dinner, they have to bring a plate of food to share. <laughs> so, but the you've had an interesting transition. You know, you've you've shared um, wonderful wisdom in this book. But you personally, having been on the farm, having then gone to the rental digs in Melbourne, and um, then I caught up with you in Nambour, where you were on the road for a couple of months with the kids. Uh. <laughs> I lived in a tent for three months with a four and a two-year-old this year, so that was a great idea. <laughs> but, but now you're putting down roots. Uh, I am. Uh, and, you know, that's one of, those, one of those concepts that I think that is, is kind of like undersold in, in our modern society, you know, like the, the real, you know, the, the, the idea of digital nomadicism is like the kind of thing that's romanticised. Oh, imagine being able to, you know, work from poolside in Bali. How amazing would that be? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's good for a bit, but it's not, it's not going to nourish you, you know. It's not like, it's not going to give you satisfaction unless you're really getting involved in a community. And, you know, I'm definitely of the same philosophy as you, Sophie, that, that like gardening and cooking your own food is this, is this super powerful tool. And it's, I like to kind of describe it as the magic bullet. Mm. You know, that there's, I can't really think of too many things, like too many of the, the kind of crises that we're facing in the world at the moment that aren't in some form addressed or remedied by having a solid connection with, with the food that you grow and having your own hand in it. Uh, whether it be physical, mental uh, or social and community-based, you know, community it's incredible. So, I mean, living on the farm was something that I really, like, aspired to for a long time. Like, I grew up in regional New South Wales uh, in a little town of 900 people called Murrurundi. <laughs> but no Mavericks fans here then, eh? Okay. Uh, so, anyway, it's in the Hunter Valley, so it's at the top end of the Hunter Valley. And um, so it was, a, it was a rural community, but we, uh, we lived on a, a kind of two-acre block on the edge of town. We weren't farmers. My parents sold guns. Um, <laughs> legally, legally, legally. <laughs> <laughs> Through a business. <laughs> Through a business. <laughs> uh, but... But, I, but because of that, you know, I didn't really connect with the concept of farming beyond the kind of, you know, that kind of romanticised version of the Australian farmer. Uh, and it wasn't until I stayed on a woofing property in Tasmania that I really kind of saw what farming could be. That small, diversified hobby farm uh, or, you know, or, or mixed farm where you're kind of growing a little bit of everything. It's more for the kitchen table and selling a little bit of surplus than like a kind of big commodity-based farm. And I thought, that's amazing. That's really what I want to do. This is the kind of pinnacle of, of life. Like, look at this place. There's, like, incredible biodiversity and you're outside and you're growing all this food and you're eating it every day. This is as good as life gets. Uh, well, we've just got a five-minute call and we're two questions in. <laughs> call the babysitters. <laughs> it's going to be a late one. Um, but so then when the opportunity to, to host River Cottage came up, uh, you know, it was kind of like a dream realised for me. That was the first opportunity that I had to to look after a 20-acre property all by myself. Uh, and, you know, I ate some of the best food that I've ever eaten in my life uh, at, at 
while I was there, you know, and it was usually because it was food that I had raised or livestock that I had raised and then killed on farm myself. Like you just, you can't compare to that. You know, the old adage that fresh is best really is really celebrated when, you, when you're on a small farm because you just can't beat like a kind of steaming bucket of freshly milked raw milk, you know, first thing in the morning at 6am after the cows have been bellowing outside your window for 20 minutes to get you up. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm really going to put you in a different paddock, Bessie. <laughs> But the, but uh, so the food was amazing, uh, and and you know we have this great ideal of of the rural community in Australia, and I mean all you have to do is is visit any rural town, and I'm sure plenty of you here live in in the regions uh, or in, in what you'd call a village, and we really do have a really strong community aspect. But what I found when I was living on a farm was that the, like the community was there on call in a way, you know, like if I needed help, I could get on the phone and someone would come around or we could call and arrange to meet up somewhere. But what I found was really lacking was that just like day-to-day incidental face-to-face chat. Uh, And, you know, because I grew up in a town with 900 people, small business owners, I was exposed to that every single laborious day of my childhood as a kid walking down the street with mum and dad, you know, walking down, oh, no, they know... (laughs) You know, 20 minutes later, you're there going like this, like, Mom, can we go now? Uh, shh, shh. Or Dad be like, shut up, boy. Uh, not really. My dad's a yoga teacher. He'd be like, come, have a deep breath, son. <laughs> Thanks, a yoga Dad. teacher like, that sold guns. Yes. That's, did anyone else think that? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so before he sold guns, he sold Harley Davidson's. <laughs> Seems like a natural kind of segue, right? <laughs> and then he was a coal miner and now he's a yoga teacher. So I should get him on stage. He loves it. <laughs> he loves it. He's a great fella. His name's actually John West. So there you go. Because <laughs> people always make that joke. You're like, oh, is your dad John West? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he is. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I was sent away from Alaska to prove myself before, I'm, <laughs> before inheriting the Semen Empire. <laughs> But I think living on the small farm, I really, like, I, I really miss that incidental, on-foot, human pace, day-to-day interaction with my, with my community. You know, if you see your neighbour and you're living in a, in a small country town but you're driving around, you know, you give, them the, give them the wave, give them the, you know, the, how's it going, and that's about it. But if you're on foot and you walk past someone, you know, you stop and you chat for 15, 20 minutes. It's amazing. You're like, and so, again, when you stop and have that face-to-face eye contact connection and that conversation, it deepens your bond to the community. It deepens the strength. Uh, and so I, 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 don't, I don't want to live on a rural property. That's, uh, you know, it comes as a shock to people, especially having been the host of River Cottage. They're like, well, you're living the dream. Uh, so it often becomes a somewhat of a surprise to people when I tell them that's not really my dream uh, anymore. So for me, the real sweet spot uh, in hindsight and one that we're now kind of embracing, my family and I, is the idea of living in a small village and living very, very, very centrally in that village. So we live uh, 15 minutes from where the River Coach farm is or was uh, in a place called Bermagui. Okay, well, so... <laughs> that um, we know about. There we go. <laughs> we know that. No Murrundi, but a little bit of Bermagui, you know, which is understandable because it's a nice place. And, you know, we live opposite the post office, you know, that's how central in town we are. And uh, we, we, can go, we can go weeks without needing to get into a car, you know, which is, a, which is amazing. We can walk to, to, to get 
the newspaper, we send mail, take the kids to school, we can walk to get groceries, you know, we can do all these things, everything's on foot. And the, the kind of celebration of that community life on the back of it's been something that we've really been thoroughly enjoying. And it's also beautiful and a really wonderful experience to be, uh, to be back in your own garden. I mean, it's, mm. I, I didn't have any problems uh, growing food in a rental garden. So all the, all the, re- all the photography uh, in this book was in a rental garden in Thornbury in, in Melbourne where we were living when I was, while I was writing the book. So we'd been there for about six months before I even turned soil. So, so you know, the, the, kind of the, the garden that you can see in there is kind of the garden, if, even if you're in a rental property, it's capable of being produced in 18 months. You know, I had two growing seasons in there during the time we were there, and it gave us so much food. We were lucky that we had a, a friendly landlord that was happy to, to allow us to dig up the backyard uh, under the caveat that it was returned to grass when we left. So the, the most heartbreaking thing for me about this entire book, because uh, there's only one heartbreak in it, really. The rest of it, I just, I'm so happy with it. I'm so proud to share it with all of you, and I'm so glad to see people get excited about it, is that the day we finished the... F- Garden photography, the day after that, I pulled the garden out. <laughs> in February, in February this year. Oh. Because we knew we were moving back to the south coast after that. And so the photography was done. We did one last big harvest and I just ripped it all out and sowed it with grass seeds. <sighs> Even Digger was looking at me like, oh, what's wrong with you? What's, you're, you're, you're an idiot. So, yeah, I, well, I, I think that I guess the, the kind of underlying principle of this whole experience, in particular, the, I guess the intersection of the relationship that I have with River Cottage and, and now the Edible Garden, is that you can connect with your food wherever you are. Wherever you are. Wherever you, whether, you have, whether you don't have a house, you know, whether you, you don't have any sort of ground to call your own, whether you've got a quarter-acre block, whether you've got a 20-acre farm, whether you've got a 15,000-hectare farm, you can play some role... Uh, in growing your own food and the benefits that come on the back of that on every single level, personal, physical, spiritual, community, is uh, I just they can't be compared to. And I mean, we're, we're in such a bad news cycle at the moment. You know, we're just, there's so much, you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. There's, a, you know, the world's, you know, kind of basket case, if you believe everything you see on TV. I mean, there's obviously a lot of problems out there, but it can be really disempowering, you know, when you see that, that you know, we're kind of, we've got lack of leadership at the federal government and international leaders, and we're, we're destined for a three-degree temperature rise by the end of the century. What do you do? You know, what, what do you do as an individual in the face of a global problem like that? And for me, the number one piece of action that I take to make myself feel like I'm actually contributing to the change uh, and to the future is to grow food. Uh, so if you guys aren't growing food at the moment, this summer is the year that you guys start growing food in some way, even if it's a little pot of herbs on the back doorstep. Uh, don't feel like you've got to go out and become a market gardener uh, you know, in your first outing. And that's, I think that's one of the problems where, that, where, that we have, like, you know, especially like blokes, you're like, guess what, kids? We're getting a vegetable garden. And, you know, you get a bobcat in, you like tear the backyard <laughs> up and you're into it for 10,000 bucks and you know, you've spent $5,000 on plants and seeds. And you know, look at that, kids, that's a vegetable garden. But you're so buggered and you've spent so much money on it and you're like, it's so big uh, and you kind of haven't grown it along with your skill set that it fails. And you go, oh, I'm a terrible gardener. It's like, no, you just bit off more than you could chew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if... So my advice to people who are, who are learning to garden or who feel like they're not a very confident gardener is to, is to start small and, and let your skills and knowledge and confidence grow along with the plants that you tend. Awesome. 
Um, <laughs> and this book makes it all very achievable. So, you know, it's it's very um, – the book is very palatable. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, you know, very inspiring and beautiful photography and it's fantastic. So if you haven't already got a copy in your hand, you need one as you walk out. You probably need a couple, actually, because um, Chrissy's you know, just around Christmas the corner. is coming up and, and all that sort of thing. So we might hand it over to you guys for questions. Now, we will say just one question per person because there's so many of you in here, which is awesome to see. This is the biggest event so far, isn't it? Uh, hands down. Yeah, how yeah, good yeah, is yeah. that, Adelaide? We Go know Adelaide. how to do it, right? <laughs> so um, we've got a roving mic over here. With oh, a how convenient jo- that the first question was right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, Paul. We come and saw you at Ballarat. So oh. you're doing your B one, and we were going. Where's Digger? I know. Are you, <laughs> I wish I could have brought him. I know. I was just curious what you thought about the Woolworths. Um, promotion with seeds and children and the growing thing. Well, I think it's a massive improvement on the Ushies. <laughs> or those little plastic products. Well, that's that. That's that's. Mm. So that's the Ushies. I've got I've oh. got like kids that age, and, yeah. and and we're like our family. You know, we we you know. I I never did it, but but you know, often when my wife would do groceries, you know, the kids would be with her, and they'd be and the people at the counter would go, "Do you want the Ushies?" Uh, and the kids would go, yeah, of course we do. Of course we want something free, uh, as kids do. And so, you know, they, she, to save a massive meltdown at the supermarket with two unruly little kids, would, would, would give it to them. Uh, and so, you know, we, we kind of had arguments about that. <laughs> Not arguments, we had heated... No, we had conversations about it. <laughs> Not usually end up sleeping on the couch with the ushies. <laughs> but I think, you know, they're... they're they're, they've got a lot of very intelligent people within the organisation, you know. Like them or love, or like, love them or loathe them, the supermarkets, they, uh, they certainly make it their business to keep the finger on the pulse of public attitude. Uh, and I think they recognise that that could be a point of difference for them to, like, the mini collectibles. Like, what do I know so much about this? <laughs> From Coles. Uh, and so, you know, and I heard that they had, like, a Ushi recycling process that then they turned into the trays. And so now if we get... Well, because, I mean, I'm human. I still shop at the supermarket. You know, I try to grow everything I can. I still try to get as much from my local bulk food store and my local butcher. But, you know, I can't make my... Well, I could make my own toilet paper, but I'm not going to. <laughs> you know, not, I'm not that far down the garden path yet. Uh, but then when they, we come to the counter and they go, do you want the pots with the seeds? I go, hell yeah. Because the kids are so excited about it and they hassle me about it all the way home. And then we have to do it immediately before we put the meat in the fridge or, well, you know, before we put the, the yogurt in the fridge, we've got to go out and do the thing in the backyard and they come out every day and they go, why aren't the seeds out yet? And I go, because they've got to grow and you've got to water them and you've got to look after them. I mean, they, you know, they kind of see that in, in my garden anyway, but they still, like, they really feel like a little bit of ownership of it. So, I mean, I'm not here condoning the... The, the business practices of our supermarket duopoly by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but that's a, a significant improvement on crappy Disney-branded Lion King toys, you know. Right. <laughs> How are you going, Paul? My name's uh, Pete. I've just got a question for you. How do we, how do we uh, go about stopping uh, our state opening up to GMO? 
Which I don't uh, know if you've heard uh, that in the news, but how do we put you know people's health before corporate world? Uh, so I think that the, 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 there's, that's a really big that's a really big question, uh, and I and I guess I did a program a while back for Catalyst called the Future of Food. I don't know if anyone saw that on the ABC. It was a little bit of a look into to kind of where science is pushing food, and obviously we came up against GMO, uh, and despite my personal beliefs uh, against it, uh, we had to explore it. In, you know, in the kind of non-biased nature of the ABC. Uh, and so I think the big takeaway of that whole experience and indeed that question uh, from, from yourself there, Peter, is that if you care about what you eat, then you need to, be, you need to take control of it yourself. You know, that's, uh, that we're, we're kind of going down this corporatisation of food production. We're seeing the death of the family farm. We're seeing farms getting bigger and being run by managers, owned by companies from all over the world. Uh, and if you think that they're growing food based on nutrient density, <laughs> then, you know, we're in for a bit of a shock because, uh, surprise, surprise, they're not. They're growing it on a profit and loss statement, which is, you know, detrimental to our health, environmental health, community health. Uh, and so, I mean, it's... Obviously, you can get involved in the campaigning mechanism, you know, make the voice be heard. I'm sure there's a lobby group uh, here in South Australia that are, that are currently fighting against that. So, by all means, throw your weight and support behind that. Um, I like, I'd like to think it's not an inevitable march, uh, but the, the number one thing that I can say is, like, if, if you really are concerned about what you're putting into your body, either have an intimate, well, you know, have a close relationship with your local farmer, maybe not an intimate relationship... <laughs> There was a TV show around that, I'm pretty sure. It was a River Cottage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and grow as much of your own food as you can because that's one of the only ways, really. Like, we, we don't... We kind of have the illusion of a transparent food system, but we, it's, it's not really, you know. It's, I was always really blown away, uh, I guess, in my travels with... Um, with that Catalyst program and a few other programs, just the, the kind of extent of chemical broadacre ag agriculture in Australia. Uh, and, you know, you think about, you know, non-organic agriculture, uh, and you think, oh, yeah, so they spray it once. No, 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 no. Like a, a, like a crop of even something might, like lentils might have nine separate applications of a whole raft of different poisons. Like, there's no other way to describe it. You go into the shed uh, and, you know, they've got, like, everything's childproof and there's... Walls of it, you know, thousand litre IBCs full of things stamped poison, uh, you know, and the farmers themselves. I mean, they're, uh, it's not to have a go at farmers who are in that role because they're in this kind of weird battle with the bank and money, and you know, and keeping that family heritage alive. It's their great great grandparents' farm, and they they want to keep it viable. And they, you know, they are to like they're environmentalists in a strange way, you know, because they they are out there in the environment on a daily basis and they see the impact that it's having and pretty much every single broad acre farmer that I've ever met that, that uses chemicals hates it but feels trapped into that cycle through the cycle of debt and, you know, big farms and all that. So, so food sovereignty I think is a massive issue uh, and it's something that we really have to take into our own hands. Great question. Okay. Next question down the front. Hi, Paul. Hi, nice mate. to meet you. Uh, I just got a question about uh, keeping bees yes. in a suburban environment. Yes. What advice have you got, um, particularly because neighbours and stuff like that? Yeah, well, so bees are... I've met people that keep bees on a balcony in an apartment building. Uh, so bees, you can, you can direct them... To, to where they go, you know, you can you can position the hive in a manner that that they'll 
I kind of go up and over. Uh, I think it's obviously dependent on your local council laws. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the, the kind of local government uh, legislation around beekeeping is here in Adelaide. But generally it's not that restrictive. I mean, sure you can't have like 20 commercial hives, you know, and be running a, like a full-on honey operation in your backyard. But keeping one hive is usually okay. Uh, I mean, it's a, a courtesy to your neighbours to maybe ask them, you know, to make sure there's not like a severe allergic reaction. But generally, they pretty much mind their own business. They mind their own beeswax, you know. They, um, so, it's, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what kind of space you have available. You own like a... a suburban house. Suburban house, yeah. Um, yeah, sm I mean, small backyard, you know, like kind of this stage area at the front here or... Yeah, oh, that's heaps of space for bees. You can tuck them into a back corner where, you know... Because obviously they, they don't like their uh, entry and exit paths interrupted. So if you're approaching hives, you generally do it from behind to the side because if you get in their flight path, they, they really don't like it. Uh, so if you can position the hive in a way that, that they can kind of come and go from the hive as they please without, you know, you in a hive traffic area for yourself, then... I, I really, I can't see a problem. And I think the, the number one advice for people that I like to give who are interested in getting bees, join your local recreational beekeeper Which club. Is the Beekeeper Society of South Australia. I'm the patron. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly Great biased. question. A great organisation. <laughs> but, it, but, it's, but it's so true, though. It is. And usually, Absolutely. like, the, the, the breadth of knowledge in, in recreational beekeeping societies and clubs is just so enormous. And they're, well, I love beekeepers because they're so passionate about the craft. And when someone new who's got no experience expresses interest in keeping bees, it's... <laughs> Break out the champagne, get the blues, <laughs> throw the ticker tape parade. We've got a new beekeeper. And now is really the time to, to get involved because it's coming. I'm not sure you're probably coming up or might be in the midst of swarming season here in South Australia. <laughs> Sounds like a few people talking from experience here. Uh, and so that's, the, that's a great time to get into beekeeping. And even if you're not feeling that confident this year to do it, join the local beekeeping club and they'll often sign you up with like a mentor or, or partner you with a mentor and you can go and work their hive for the first year. And they'll, because because it can be pretty intimidating. You know, there's 30,000 of these things that we know sting us uh, in a box and you're taking the, the lid off it and... Uh, but once you get to know working with bees there, they're amazing creatures and, and you know, once, once the beekeeping bug stings, I was just trying to make, <laughs> make it like two bag, then you're hooked for life, you know. So it's, uh, it sounds like you've got a perfect kind of spot for keeping a nice hive of bees. And even a suburban backyard, it's really realistic that you might produce like 30 to 50 kilograms of honey off a single hive in a good season. Awesome. Fabulous. You haven't had to go up the stairs yet. How good is this? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, g'day, Paul. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh. oh, sorry, we'll come to you next, sir. It's... Oh, okay, no, sorry, just this well, gentleman, just, he's got the mic. Yep. I'll come to you next, sir. Apologies. Thanks, yeah, man. Yeah, g'day, Paul. Uh, just a quick question. Normally you don't see the white cabbage moth, but as soon as you put your broccoli in, cauliflower, <laughs> right, you just, yeah, you get an abundance of them. We've yes. tried all the natural sprays, netting, and it's just... Yeah, what's your trick? What's well, hard? Uh, so I guess producing like a, a, a really biodiverse backyard is a good way to a good start. Uh, you know, that to uh, to have like plenty of like shrubs and small trees and flowering plants that encourage, encourage a whole raft of beneficial predators, birds, things like that. And I, I remember asking one of my market gardening friends, who's a non-certified but chemical-free 
gardener who grows lots of brassicas uh, are about how he did it. I'm like, how do you, you know, how do you grow these rows of broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower without using really anything? Uh, and he he kind of put it to me in a way that that I, I guess has really resonated since is that that insects and pests usually attack stressed plants. So the healthier, you know building your soil fertility, making sure that your plants are really well fed, uh, adequately watered, not saying that yours aren't, but just really trying to optimise that plant health with like applications of liquid seaweed, compost around the base, uh, making sure they're really, really healthy. You'll probably find a little bit of natural resistance. But beyond that, um, you know, it's, it sounds like you're already doing every trick in the book, you know. So increased biodiversity, really healthy plants, and then just acceptable loss. As well, I guess, like it's that's just part of growing stuff that, you know, we, we've kind of become accustomed to that perfect produce we see on the supermarket shelf. But there's, you know, if it's got a few holes in it, still eats, still eats all right. Thanks, awesome. mate. Well, uh, just a quick uh, few words on your book. Uh, as an old book printer, my, that was my career. That uh, must have been a heck of a job for you to, you know, get it all together and produce in such a easy, readable and um, beautifully presented way. Um, the, and the, lastly, I don't see the name of the publisher or printer in the book, so that's the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thing actually, I, I made for. all these copies in my backyard. Uh, <laughs> I haven't made toilet paper yet, but I did print this book. No, the, so the publisher is um, uh, Plum, which is an imprint of Pan Macmillan, uh, and it was, printed, it was printed in China. You know, it was on FSC paper uh, and, you know, obviously a whole team of designers and, and uh, editors worked on this as well. I mean, I, I haven't got the kind of digital nous or the design aesthetic to put together something quite as beautiful as that, but I wrote the recipes and did the words and so obviously this is a culmination of uh, the work of a team and, and thank you. Thank you for yeah. your very kind words. I it appreciate that. It is a beautiful that. book. Well said. Okay, now we're up the back there somewhere. I can't see where hands are going up. It's like being – these lights are very bright. So back, if, eh? if we're not oh, making we eye the, contact, the, we can't your, your see you. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I just want to say you actually inspired my husband and I to – we've purchased two and a half acres and we've just started building a house. Oh, congratulations. Um, from watching your series. But what I wanted to ask was how do you go about developing a good soil base to – start that vegetable garden organic matter yeah yeah as minimum minimum disturbance and all the organic matter that you can get in there you know it's everything that you can compost do compost keep worms you know try not to like tear the soil up i like to use one of um it's kind of like a giant fork like a big wide heavy fork uh, called uh Oh, what's a mental blank? Um, broad fork, a broad fork. And so, you, so rather than, you know, initially I'll take the sod layer off and take the grass away and that's about as disturbed as the garden gets. And then if it comes to like replanting, I get this big broad fork which is about this wide, it's got tines about that long that are set on about a 30 degree angle and you kind of push it in and lift it so it aerates the soil and gives it a little bit of body but it doesn't you know turn it over and you don't lose all that that carbon uh, and structure from your soil so really I just like to try to get as much compost mulch compost whatever you have in your region use it <laughs> organic matter horse manure, horse manure can be tough because it's got seeds in it so make sure you like honk hot sorry hot composting it 
excuse me first to make sure that it sterilizes those seeds. Uh, because I've, I mean, I made that mistake a long time ago. I'm like, oh, horse poo, five bucks a bag. I'm going to get some of that for the garden. And then had a lawn in the veggie garden. So, <laughs> damn you, horses. Uh, so, yeah, so horse manure tends to need pasteurization through compost. Awesome. Now, we've got one more question up the back, and then probably one last question after this. So. Okay, this is a very specific little question. Okay. We've just started growing veggies for the first time and we have quite a small backyard, so we can't really, um, like, block it off. But our dog has destroyed our snow peas. Ah. <laughs> um, she thinks they're fantastic. And <laughs> <laughs> We're obviously doing something right then. <laughs> and I'm worried she's just going to continue to eat all of our veggies. Um, any tips? To uh, <laughs> so I've never had to do this because Digger, I mean, Digger, he likes radishes. Wow. And I've seen him, like, he'll pluck them out and then he'll sit there with these little paws crossed and, like, nibble on the, the root. Like, he pulls them out. By the, but uh, so I've never, I've never personally really had to deal with it, but I've heard that, like, cane pepper, uh, because dogs are so scent-orientated and that's such a, a powerful smell, it's like it's not really something that gets us, but you can imagine, you know, not in the garden, but if you were to put your nose in the spice rack and get a big smell of cane pepper, like, it's, it wouldn't be that pleasant. But if you... I mean, it's just give it a go anyway. Other than that, you're probably looking at physical exclusion. Uh, or, or you just have to be out there and be like, no, no, <laughs> naughty dog. <laughs> okay, and one last question. Oh, here we and, go. Then, and then Paul will be signing more books. If you haven't already got a book, still time to get one tonight. Thank you. Um, Paul, I grew up in the suburbs where my dear old dad grew all of our food with um, fruit trees and lots of veggies and um, he was um, uh, <coughs> he wasn't a fan of um, chemicals but he used to um, as pest control he would spray his vegetables with grey water oh. so I'm just wondering your thoughts on that so grey water uh, my assumption around using grey water as a pest control would be the fact that it contains soap uh, and then that it, as he sprays it over any sort of infantile insects, it forms a film over them and they can't breathe because there are, you know, chemical-free, you know, pests, uh, remedies that usually include a few drops of laundry soap or something like that and it's my understanding that that is to, to create a film within the water that sits over the pest itself or the insect itself and essentially suffocates it. So... He's, uh, he's pretty onto it. Uh, I, there's some resistance around using excessive grey water on the veg vegetable garden because of build-up of salts. Uh, I know um, through conversations with the CSIRO water scientist, Dr Richard Sturzacker, uh, just name-dropping. <laughs> oh, Dr Richard Sturzacker and me at the CSIRO. <laughs> I just love saying his name. Dr Richard Sturzacker. Uh, he's, uh, he, he does a lot of work in the developing uh, in, you know, in Africa uh, around water use in subsistence farming. And he's, but he lives in Canberra. He's also got a, he's a very, very keen vegetable gardener. You may have remembered we saw there was an episode we featured him on River Cottage. That's the day that I, he made what's called the chameleon. Uh, and he was really against it because he'd done the tests in his own garden and found that you know, consistent watering with grey water in a vegetable garden led to a build-up in mineral salts that actually became counterproductive to growing food. So it's not to say you can't use grey water uh, and imagine in, a, in Australia's lowest rainfall city that, that you have to be resourceful with whatever you can get. Uh, but I'd be very um, 
wary about using it in one spot all the time and check the, check the test the soils to make sure you're not, you know, if, they, if you start to see the, the performance of plants where you're watering with grey water deteriorate, then I'd, I'd check and maybe give it some, a break from the grey water. Awesome. Well, Paul, that was fantastic. That time flew by. Did it? Uh, <laughs> I think you hardly came up for I for another three air. hours, I reckon. That was awesome. We're only just getting started. <laughs> so this, this book is an absolute treasure. Thank you for sharing your passion, your commitment and your vision for how food, people um, and life should be. And um, so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for, for joining into this conversation and thank Paul West. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me here this evening. It's definitely the biggest turnout we've had so far. So, so go Adelaide. You've, <laughs> you've knocked Sydney and Hobart out of the park. So, yeah. Uh, awesome. Amazing. Okay. So, we'll Thanks, be everyone. out in the foyer. Oh. We Shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.